KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's the treatment in person with Noah Hawley. Finally, after two visits over many and very different Zoom lines, he's here for, let me show you, I got this right, the new edition of Fargo. They aren't seasons, they're years. I think they also use the words installment or, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, it's uh, this, this preferential language uh, control system is, uh, is new to me as well. This season, as well as many others, include so many of the elements I've come to think of uh, with you. The combat between faith and fate, as in so many Coen Brothers things that you've probably been influenced by, there is a Gollum figure. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this, very much. I mean, even take us back to almost the, the, the origins of the Gollum figures, but it's also kind of a reset. It takes us almost back to sort of the same territory as the original Fargo film with an auto dealership and people fighting for business supremacy. Talk about what the origins of this season for you. It's a bit of a, a game of telephone this season. It's it's as if someone said to me, write a story about a man who kidnaps his wife. He sends two guys to kidnap his wife. And Joel and Ethan wrote a similar movie in which Bill Macy had his own wife kidnapped. I wrote a story in which uh, Juno Temple, who plays Dot, is kidnapped by her ex-husband or the husband that she ran away from, played by John Hamm. But we built a set that was much like the set that uh, from the movie, uh, and two guys in, in masks came to get her. And it does that thing that I always like to play with in Fargo, which is that it, it sets you up with something you've seen before so that part of your brain is remembering the movie and then the other part of your brain is seeing something you've never seen before. And it creates a really interesting tension, I think, for the audience in both re-experiencing something familiar and discovering something new. But you create a, a character, and I don't want to give away who that is for folks that haven't seen it yet, who's kind of like the Terminator. She's like both the Terminator <laughs> and Sarah Connor at the same time. Right, yeah. Well, she's referred to as a, as a tiger. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a a cameo in there for people who, who have a good ear for voices uh, at a certain point. But um, yeah, you know, Juno Temple, what, what I loved about her is she's such a fun and kind of mischievous character. And you're talking about a, the mother of a 12-year-old girl, you know, who is married to a, to a car salesman who is kidnapped and then escapes and then says it never happened because she's living in denial, which a lot of Fargo characters do that this reality is real. And, you know, if she weren't so fun and mischievous, you would want to call Child Protective Services on her because she's kind of a terrible mom on one level, but on another level, you think that, you know, she's really teaching her daughter how to be strong and resourceful without teaching her to be afraid, which I think is a really critical part of the season. This year is set in 2019, and it's, but it's interesting because we see so many things like people smoking that make it seem like it's much further in the past than, than it actually is. Right. I always feel like this in this region, this this fictional Midwest that that I write about, 
it's the year that it is, you know, it's 2019, but it's also kind of 1990 and it's also kind of 1960 or 1940. And you see that in the music choices and, and well, you start off with a yes. So. <laughs> yeah. And just this kind of timelessness of, of the region that, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Again, so many things you've done here, you get to really land on like two Americas at war with each other, two Americas that seem similar, but in fact, in crucial ways are very different. Uh, and, and also two different kinds of capitalism at war with each other, too. You know, it was in, in my head that that all the main characters this season are all Republican uh, on some level, even even Dot and her husband, that they're fiscal conservatives. They they believe in what they think the Republican Party used to used to mean Jennifer Jason Lee as the as the billionaire, the old school, you know, power money Republican, and and then John Hamm representing this new alt right Tiger King nipple piercing Bible thumping gun toting America. It's so interesting too because each of these characters, when we meet them, they sort of seem like this apotheosis of conservatism until we meet somebody else. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it is this dance that we get into, which was that what was radical last year is mainstream this year. And, and, but it's also something I really started exploring in the third year of Fargo, which was this idea of alternative facts and the exploration of the phrase, this is a true story. And, you know, and here we really, it's really calcified into the America that John Hamm lives in is completely different than the America that, say, um, Richard Morjani's character, Indira, lives in. And the language itself means different things to different people. I mean, what freedom means or what truth means. You know, these things are, are all play right into the, the heart of Fargo, which is basically it's a it's a tragedy about people's inability to communicate with each other from from the very beginning in Joel and Ethan's movie and 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 even for a tragedy of of Bill Macy's inability to communicate with himself to even know his own mind to even admit what he's doing and say it out loud and and so the more America turns into this place where people are literally speaking the same language but the words mean different things it just begins to there seems like no end in sight to the Cohen-esque nature of of reality. See, it was so funny about that, and this really hit me in a way that it hadn't in the previous years of the show, that opening credit that tells us it's based on the true story. It really hit me what that means. It's true to these people who are living it. Right. And that's what, in the way that it never hit me before, because each person has a different truth. And going back to you, you talking about the Jerry character from the movie, there's that figure in each season who is somebody who can't say what they really know to be the truth. And this season, it's, it's Juno's character, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, you might feel an echo of Kirsten Dunst's character, right? Um, or even Carrie's character, too, to some extent. Right. What the characters in Fargo face that Bill Macy faced is like, if you can't admit the truth, then it's a tragic ending for you. And I think the challenge for Juno is, will she be the first of these characters to kind of face reality and to admit reality? And so she can overcome it. And, you know, we're rooting for her with um, her husband, Wayne, and her daughter. And we want her to get this life back that is so meaningful to her. But the only way she's going to do it is if she can face up 
to reality. And, and, you know, I think that that also makes it different than, than other seasons on some level. It's the treatment we're talking about, the new edition of Fargo with its creator, executive producer, Noah Hawley. The show's on FX and Hulu. You can also hear this show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. I guess, though, as we're talking about this, what I just find myself thinking is when the sun goes down, it becomes a horror movie. I mean, so many times on this show, no matter what year it is, especially like in the second episode, when the sun goes down, it becomes a terrifying place. Talk about that. And of course... You know, this far north, the sun goes down to like three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think I think of the show as as the you know basically decent people who are probably in over their head and they're facing the forces of cynicism and and corruption. And these are the things that thrive in the dark. Either you can't see them, or you don't want to look at them, or we're not supposed to talk about them. And all the cliches about hope in the light. But I think that quite viscerally, we have this fear of, of darkness because the, you know, whatever primordial inability to create our own light and, and living in, in the dark. But, but I think there is something mythological about, about darkness as, as well in, in America. And, and, you know, in the northern regions, you know, there are places where for months at a time, the sun never rises. Something else that happens pretty often in your work, too, when you go back to your, to your last book, is the difference in sort of emotional age between the men and the women. Right. And, and it's really the, the women kind of run the households in this new edition of the show. And there's a speech that comes, we were just talking about before we got started, in uh, the sixth episode that really spells this whole thing out that you've been playing on. And I just wonder, because that's so often, too, what happens on the show. You're talking, we talk about Carrie uh, Kun just a second ago, and these women who are the adults in, in, in the show. Yeah, one of the things that I, I wanted to explore in, in revisiting the movie, right, is that you have Bill Macy, who's the lead character in many ways, protagonist, and, and he hires these two guys, Steve Buscemi, major character in the show, Peter Stormar, major, major character in the show, you know, to have his wife kidnapped so that his father-in-law, not as major, but still a real character in, in the movie, will pay the ransom. And the one person who is not a major character in the show is is his wife. You know, we, we meet her, she's whisking, and then she's trying to fight off these kidnappers, and then there's a bag over her head, and then and then she's dead. And, and in my game of telephone, I just thought it would be interesting to explore the wife's point of view. And in doing so, to really try to deconstruct this idea of wifeness because we refer to her as as the wife, and we're always talking about the wife. And as wife, an object, the wh- wife. Right, and wife means a very specific thing. And there's a, there's an essay from the 70s and that was in New York Magazine by a woman who wrote this, this piece that said, I want a wife. And she wrote about all the things that she needed a wife for, you know, and there, there's a moment where a character sort of says a similar thing to his exactly. wife, I want a wife. And she says, I am your wife. And he's like, no, a wife, someone who's going to cook and clean and... So in exploring wifeness, though, I also wanted to look at the flip side, which is the masculinity. You know, you've got John Hamm, who is this, the current language is toxic male, but let's say alpha male. And then you have David Reisdahl's character, who plays Juno's husband, who we would call a beta male. And in the cliche version of these stories, you would have a scene in which the beta male faces the alpha male and, and dominates him and thus becomes an alpha himself. But I don't think those are the options. You know, I think 
that David's character is completely comfortable in his masculinity. In fact, there's a scene where I don't want to get too much weight in the hospital that to me is kind of the emotional center of the entire show where he leans on his wife. There's a a long silence, like five seconds of silence in this hunk that they have. Yeah. That's the key moment in the show. Yeah, I think, you know, this. he grew up uh, with Jennifer Jason Lee for, for a mother, very strong Another mother. tiger. And and he married Juno, who's who's he married his mom in some ways. He is a very strong and capable woman, but she's nice, which is the difference. And you know, I mean, he runs an auto dealership. He makes a lot of decisions. He he brings home the money, but he's perfectly happy. His wife's better at at decisions and stuff. You know, it's like he 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 has no desire to be the boss in in his house, and that doesn't make him less of a man. Is the point of the season. And Lamorne Morris's character. Who's a, who's a North Dakota state trooper. Yeah. You know, he's just a decent guy. He's not trying to impose his will on other people that this. He's also not a super cop, which you never do in the show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's again, as I said, basically decent people who are probably in over their head. It's, it makes it more relatable. I think we really feel like these, these are stories about us versus, you know, I mean, as much as I, I like a Mission Impossible movie, it's not a relatable character. I'm not saying, well, Ethan Hunt and me, we have a lot in common. We're going to take a break talking about alpha and beta males with our guest, Noah Hawley, whose new iteration of Fargo is on FX. We're not going to say season. It's the treatment this morning. Come stay with us. Welcome back. He's finally here in the studio with me, Noah Hawley. It's the treatment. It's the new installment yes. of Fargo. It's fifth year on FX and on Hulu. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. The music choices this season are really interesting because it's, in some ways, we're in the car people playing whatever their Spotify playlist is. Right. And all these tone choices. And by the way, the score stuff this season is really great. There's some moments that are really evocative for Carter Burwell in the score, but also some other songs too. I want you to talk about the music bed a little bit because it feels a lot more expansive this season. Yeah, I mean Jeff Russo, the uh, my composer who I've worked with on uh, on everything, you know, he and I sit down very early and, and talk about characters and themes and he's always writing themes for characters that don't always end up being scored to those specific characters, but but there is a drama to the music. And because it's evocative of the movie, you know, there there are some of those plaintive elements. And I, I think what what really elevated the movie Fargo from an indie quirky indie movie to to an Oscar movie was that score. It was the symphonic, the power of that main theme and that score. And so it's always important to me. And, you know, Jeff tells me that we were the first or one of the first in TV to, to actually record symphonic score f- for television. You know, it probably, probably hadn't happened in about 30 years. Yeah, to have orchestras come in and, you know, but we also work electronic music and, and, and a lot of those elements. When I start thinking about the show and, and writing to it, I just, I do that Spotify playlist and I just, I either hear things or, or I do a sort of research dive, you know, in the seventies of, in season two of just looking, not just at the 70 songs that you know, but like 79 was the first Kraftwerk album, right? So that's an interesting, the first Devo 
album, those those pieces that, that get into it. But then, as I said earlier, it's also, you can never go wrong with Burl Ives. You know what I mean? There There is a sort of throwback-ness to it or, or, or Mac Davis or, you know, those things. And it can be, it can cover, you know, all, all different ranges of music from jazz to, to folk. And this year, you know, we start with this Yes song, I've Seen All Good People. And, and it's such a great, powerful, feels like a really positive energy song, but is also... You know, intensely critical. Yeah, of of the human animal. I always look at for songs that aren't just good songs, right? It, why are you putting the song in this moment? What does it have to do with the show? And then sometimes you get lucky. There there was a piece that's in the seventh hour that you haven't seen yet. It's like an Armenian composer, and literally, I just I heard it on on KUTX in in Austin driving around and we were looking for a piece that to fit in this it was a sort of like 6 minute sequence and we put it in and it worked to the second like it's it's amazing sometimes you find these things the universe hands you what you need it's the true room. i guess who's referring to public radio stations and other places is Noah Hawley his new edition of Fargo is on FX and Hulu also, the show at kcow.com slash the treatment. But I want to get back now into this thing we talk about every time we get together, which is the collision between faith and fate. And one sort of says, if you live your life a certain way, then certain rewards will come to you. And the other says, there is no redemption. You should use the name of the company. <laughs> That's a big part of the show in this in this year. There's no redemption despite whatever good acts you think you're committing. And that collision between willfulness and the arbitrary, you like these contradictions sort of slamming into each other. The epic and the deadpan. Right. Is, is the way you work too. Because the movie had that opening Chiron that said, this is a true story. And because we always have that as well, I think that that we are allowed to use things like randomness and coincidence and synchronicity and elements in a story that you wouldn't necessarily find. And, and some of those things play into a higher power. And some of those things like fish falling from the sky feel biblical, but, you know, they're also explainable by science. And sometimes there's a UFO and, you know, the meaning is at the end of the day, what do you want it to mean? You know, I think is a big part of the, of the story. You know, in season two, Crystal Miyadi, who has who whose character has cancer, and she's laying in bed, and and this this young woman who works with Jesse Plemons' character is is reading Camus. He's reading Sis, Myth of Sisyphus, and talks about how you know this whole idea that life is absurd. And she says, "Well, whoever wrote that didn't have a six year old girl. You know, you can't say that to a child, right?" And ultimately, the the reason to be good is is its own reward. There's a line that I'm very proud of from the third year where David Thula says, the problem is not that there is evil in the world. The problem is that there is good. Otherwise, who would care? And it kind of reduces it to a very simple equation, which is, you know, if there were only bad people in the world, then then badness would not be a, a threat. A threat. But because there are good people, now badness is a problem. But for the for the the forces of cynicism and corruption who want to be bad, in the land of corruption, innocence is sin. The years before this, years three and four, sort of felt like increasingly sort of I don't want to say cynical, but just it's hard to sort of see sunlight. And this new 
iteration of the show, there's lots of literal and figurative sunlight just by the actions of Juno's character, but also what we get to see Indira doing in the show. I mean, there there are people who are exercising in really sort of forceful ways this impulse to be decent that we hadn't seen so much in, in the years that had come before. And I want to ask you if that was a conscious thing that you were doing in this particular installment of the show. Yeah, I mean, I think to the the degree that the the show matches with the reality that that we're living it feels like the country is is becoming a more cynical place but there's also a need for hope in a way that i feel like people want to see exercise yes. and it exists in this iteration this particular uh, story you're telling I haven't seen the entire season, so I don't know how it ends up, but certainly seeing people trying to enforce, if I do what is right, then the world will return something to me. Yeah, I think that need for light, I certainly feel it as a viewer. You know, I feel it when I watch things, which is not the blue skies uh, Hollywood thing that people talk about, but but it is. What's the path to victory here for these characters? uh, I don't want to feel like there's no way out for these characters. You know, I'm rooting for America, right? I, I think that a lot, a lot of us are rooting for America, but on the right, they tend to, to talk about this Manichean good versus evil battle, right? Where everything is so heightened. And, you know, the Fargo mindset is, right, is well, it's good with a small G. It's decency. It's the everydayness that matters. It's, it's you know, Juno Temple is, you know, she's not a pushover. And, and if you're coming to her with evil intentions, you're probably going home in a, in a body bag. But also, if you break into somebody's house, you can make her a cup of coffee she's never had before. I mean, that... Exactly. Just, I mean, no, there's so many grace notes like that in the show in this year. Because I went back to rewatch, because uh, I just it actually whet my appetite for the, the previous years. I don't mean to use the word dark, but fate threw a much bigger shadow. And the response didn't feel in both measured and epic in the way that it does in this year. And I'm wondering if part of that is just coming through COVID and the way we all did and exercising some of the, the demons you did in the last novel, if, if that was leading to what we're seeing in this new year of, of Fargo? I think so. You know, I, I also try this year to really champion the system of justice, the collaboration between law enforcement entities, you know, in contrast with John Hamm's I Am the Law, which is a kind of warped echo of Tommy Lee Jones in, in No Country, who, though he's a nice guy with common sense and, and a folksy measure, he's not driving back out to the crime scene to meet with the federal boys. Every time they they give him the opportunity to to be part of a justice system, he refuses. And so he's just as much of a lone wolf as Josh Brolin and Anton Sugar, but I didn't see that until I rewatched it recently. As long as we're talking about fate, and, and that's where the author comes in. I mean, he sort of realizes there are things that are out of his hands. Right. Yes, but which you know, certainly Josh Brolin and, and Chigurh, they they think they can control everything. So he's different on that level, but he's not asking anyone for help. He's not saying the only way to overcome this thing that I don't understand is for us to band together as a community and face it, right? And so I think that for me this year was very important that the only thing that's going to overcome the forces of darkness is the collaboration of decency, you know, you'll see when you see how the how the season wraps up that I try to face this age old question of like, how do you move past the history 
of antagonism between people. How do you, if you know, if you and I are at odds and, and I've done things to you and you've done things to me, how do you get get past that? Or is is the the constant Hatfield McCoy, is that are we doomed to that? You know, and I and I do think this season takes a position, this installment, this edition, takes a position on no, we got to repair. We got to move past it. That we got to have the truth and the reconciliation. We sit here, and I can't talk a little bit about Dave Foley, between the voice and the Clark Gable mustache and uh-huh. the eye patch, and half of what he's doing in the show is just saying, "Yeah, uh huh." I mean, he's not even <laughs> saying a whole lot. And that that character, one of my favorite names ever, Danish Graves. I uh-huh. mean, he does. <laughs> yes. The thing with Dave, uh, obviously, he's a, he's a legend, and he's Canadian. Uh, and so he kind of fits into this understated, you know, non non demonstrative region a bit. And you know, he did this voice for it that we didn't talk about. You know, there's a little gravel to his voice. He's, he's a little clipped uh, thing. The eye patch. You know, I saw someone at the gym with an eye patch, and I just thought. It was great, and I tried to put a black eye patch on him, but a white eye patch was much funnier for some reason. And so, you know, that's half of the game for me is there's a little bit of improv in my storytelling technique. It's because it's always yes and, uh, you know. It's uh, when I'm thinking about story, it's not like, oh, we could do better. It's like, oh, that's interesting, yes and. So then what would happen next? And, yeah, Dave, Dave is a foil to Jennifer Jason Lee, you know, he's hapless in the in the best way and yet authoritarian, you know, as the consigliere for the billionaire you, is credible too. And, you know, that's it's a hard thing to pull off. And also we get to see there's one scene where he's not there, but it's inferred that he's a really infect, effective tool. Yes. In this region, I mean, Lorraine is an outsized figure living in this in this region and she has national political connections and you know nasdaq listed or fortune 500 listed no, company nasdaq should tell you it's nasdaq yeah. listed multi-billion dollar corporation yeah and you know i i like that idea that when you think about meditations on power which is also sort of we do a lot in fargo right which is you know this this old adage that that Adolf used to have about how you know the sin is is when a banker has more power than a soldier right and there's always that sort of fascistic idea that that brute force is the real power and dominance you know so that's why John Hamm thinks that he should be able to dominate Jennifer and Jennifer's going I think capitalism always wins and in terms of who hires who it's not you hiring me it's me hiring you and and I think that's what makes the the sort of battle between them so so delightful is he's fighting a different war on a completely different playing field than she's fighting and and I always like rivalry stories, whether it's Ewan McGregor versus Ewan McGregor or Jason Schwartzman versus Chris Rock. Like, there's just something very funny to me about it. But in those those rivalries, though, finally it comes down to their land battles. There are people fighting literally for turf in each of these instances you talked about. Yes. Well, which is the other element of the American story, right, is that it is about land and and this land that that we conquered uh, and was so much bigger than any any other landmass that that anyone had ever sort of decided to remake from scratch and you know and those who those first you know robber barons and the wealth was based in in land you know in the movie giant right it's like how many acres do you have it's like 500,000 it's like what do you even mean is there that much land in america it's you know it's the volume of of land 
Well, we're talking to somebody who lives in a mammoth landmass, Noah Hawley. He's a creator and executive producer of the newest edition of Fargo on FX and Hulu. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Noah. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. Fargo series creator Noah Hawley on the story he's telling in the fifth edition of the show, now on Hulu. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for spending your year with KCRW and for your support. So please continue that and consider giving KCRW an end-of-year pledge. We're happy to have you here with us. More to come. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. My guest... Director, writer, Emma Seligman has a way of dealing with the comedy of chaos to try to deal with her character's emotional chaos and also the point of emotional stability, which is when the camera styles really change in her films from Shiva Baby to her newest Bottoms, which played at South by Southwest this year, to incredible acclaim. The film's now getting theatrical release. Emma, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And there is just so much to talk to because they're both such visually stylized films and that kind of visual clarity from a filmmaker that young as young as you and who also was influenced in the best way by comedy which is not to say over lighting but lighting to get character across talk about that influence and then how you brought that to bear because that's much more what we think was being dramatic lighting than comedy lighting isn't it totally i mean i really appreciate that you noticed that uh i think that you know, often comedies, yeah, have very high key lighting. And I think my cinematographer Maria and I tried to figure out how we can light this and color this in a way that felt different and unique without just having, you know, a style for the sake of having style. Um, and we looked toward a lot of older uh, American teen movies uh, because in general I wanted this to have a feeling of timelessness so that we could have like our queer characters exist in the teen movie genre and you know for all the decades that we've we've missed out on being represented so we looked toward Greece and American graffiti and uh, is there a little bit of fast times in there yeah a little bit and John Hughes and well, John Hughes definitely but John Hughes was really the first director to light comedy as if it were drama. Yeah, yes. And to care about the characters, like what you said, in terms of 
you know, honoring their emotions in each scene and using the environment to do that in a skillful way. Even, but certain comedies are lit really well and people don't give them enough credit. I remember we rewatched She's All That and that sounds like a movie that isn't, you know, you wouldn't think is lit beautifully, but it is. But some of the things I, I hate about you, that's yeah. also really beautifully lighted. I mean, that there's a period of the, the late 90s where, Again, there are comedies of chaos. There are tons of people. There are lots of people walking through the shots. But we know who people are based on what they're wearing, which is often what you do in Bottoms, isn't it? We tried, yeah. We worked with an amazing costume designer who I also sort of gave like a million references to, taking from like all time periods of teen movies. And she took all my wild ideas and made it cohesive. Like I was like, I want Isabel you know, who's the main love interest in the movie played by Havana Rose Lou. I want her to have like pastels and, and textures that remind us of Greece and, you know, like fuzziness in, in her wardrobe. But I also want Brittany played by Kaya Gerber to feel like she's out of like a Y2K movie, you know, with like her Canadian tuxedo, like kind of Brittany looks and et cetera. Um, and I think Eunice was able to do a wonderful job at trying to sort of make it all seem like it's in the same world, but took took from from those different um, references. So yeah, I, we wanted it to stand out. I mean, these are individual characters and, and we wanted also the movie to feel heightened and absurd and not just like a typical comedy. So everything visually needed to reflect that. Which is the aspect of Heather's that comes through because yes. that's, that's definitely heightened. And it's also about tribal behavior. Yes. And it plays in its way to the extent that it can with with, with uh, gender roles. Mm -hmm. But it's also, too, about the impacts of violence. It's interesting because there's so many movies that are 30 years old or older that feel like they're a part of this. I almost feel to some extent you can look at Raising Arizona as having an impact on this movie. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I love Raising Arizona so oh, do much. You? Yeah. What makes you think that there there's something of well, that? The, the way color is used, the way cameras sort of, there are lots of swish pans in the movie yes. in the way that there are in, in Raising Arizona. And again, the naked Arizona of a furniture store is kind of a, a mood board for the movie mm. in the same way that the hallway is the mood board for your film that we can see the change in the emotional temperature of the movie every time the, the, the story goes to the hallway. We've been talking about almost everything except what the movie's about, Emma. So let, <laughs> let me ask you what Bottoms is about to explain for the audience. For sure. Um, to put it simply, Bottoms is about uh, two teenage girls, Josie and PJ, who start a fight club at their high school so they can try to impress and hook up with cheerleaders uh, they have crushes on. When you put it that way, it sounds even more absurd than it actually is. Just mm. fight club as a way to pick mm. up others is just such a wonderful concept and and PJ's is your is your co-writer and so talk to me about as you were building out this conceptually the movies both these movies Shiva Baby and and, and Bombs are about honesty mm. and and people having to reckon with the fact that they're not being honest with themselves mm. by the very end of both movies the character played by your lead has a recognized that even though she thinks she's telling the truth about everybody else, she's not telling the truth about herself. Mm -hmm. And I want to know where that comes from for you guys. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that connection. I think that that comes from characters that are that young and so focused on validation and false confidence and trying to gain a sense of control from having sex or being able to say they, you know, had sex, whether or not they're a teenager and they're super 
selfish and absurd and, you know, outrageous like PJ, like Rachel's character in Bottoms, or whether that sort of conflict is more internal, like how it is in Shiva Baby with Danielle. Yeah, both characters share that level of of a lack of self-confidence and a lack of understanding of, of self-worth within themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Bottoms is about friendship and being able to stick up for yourself and not being codependent and leaning on another person to to give you everything, um, especially in high school. And I think we sort of found that emotional arc as we continued writing the movie. But when we were first writing it, we really just wanted to write something stupid and fun that allowed like both the queerness of the characters and the the femaleness of the characters to be as horny and hormonal and um, selfish and flawed as possible in a way that felt relatable and human. Um, and I think as we developed it over the years, you know, we started sort of focusing in on a little bit more of like, okay, well, what are these characters actually going through or what are they trying to achieve just to make the story make a little bit more sense because it used to be even more absurd and all over the place than it is now. But I thought Raising Arizona, too, is a classic kind of American screwball comedy that the Coens fall into. it, And I think that this does, too. That sort of thing of characters explaining themselves, but getting in their own way. And that aspect, especially of your two leads, who are constantly inventing their own mythology for themselves and then falling in love with that mythology as they're saying it, which is kind of the wonder of watching Io just do that so beautifully in that one scene that you could have played for laughs. And it's funny, but you can also see oh, she's inventing herself mm. for these people. And it's kind of like a campfire scene. It's almost like Stand By Me or some moment <laughs> like that. Talk about it, because that's, that's such a wonderful set piece. Hayao and I talked a lot about that scene and sort of figuring out for a way for her character to get there authentically, where she's really sort of inventing a persona and and tapping into a story about herself that is totally untrue for the sake of seeming cool and impressing, you know, her crush in this little circle they've created of, of truth telling. Uh, and I think that is like the real moment of, you know, the midpoint or the point of no return for Josie, for Io's character. Like she's not going back. She has started to truly, truly believe this mythology that her and PJ have created for the two of them. Um, that's selling that the two characters are, you know, super badass and cool. And, you know, basically, you know, just to clarify the reason they're able to sort of start this fight club and convince, you know, all these other girls in the school that they know what they're doing and that they know how to fight is because there was a rumor that was started that they went to juvie this past summer. And so that's sort of the lie that they they take and run with. There's so many movies that play with these things, but I, I love that there's this self-realization that happens for all the characters in the movie that could have gone into a much more melodramatic place. And I'm sure that you had to ask yourself as a filmmaker, that's what you wanted at some point, right? Definitely. I think that we were pressured along the way to make it more dramatic or or more grounded and, and to deeply care about these characters and explain why they're making the questionable decisions that they're making, you know, in terms of how flawed they are. And Rachel and I, you know, really wanted to avoid that because I think there's often much more pressure on female characters to explain why they're making bad choices. Um, and we just wanted them to exist and to be, you know, doing that without having to make the movie too dramatic. But I think we ended up sort of finding a sweet spot. But but yeah, it, tone is always the hardest thing to achieve, like when you're writing and when you're directing performances and then when you're in the edit, especially 
in a movie like this where you're combining like six different genres, <laughs> um, you have to really try to, or I have to try to make sure I understand the world of this movie and the tone and, and sort of, it can't get too dramatic. You said something which I thought was really fascinating, that people were saying that these characters have to be dramatic for us to care about them. But we were talking about the Coen brothers or, or, or John Hughes movies. And a lot of those, the most comedic characters are the ones that we feel the most empathy for, mm. uh, the ones that we connect with the most. And that is a particular, I think, myth ascribed to, to women actors or women characters on screen that they have to carry a, a kind of um, two-dimensional emotional weight. And clearly there's something between these two movies and your short you've never been interested in. You've always been about just sort of trying to elbow aside what people think of are these these archetypes, these moles that female characters have to fit in. I try, you know, I but I, I don't think I think too hard about it. I just try to write them as people. But I do I did find, you know, when we were doing like test screenings for bottoms, people were like they're not likable. Like they just said that about Josie and PJ, particularly PJ, Rachel's character. And I was a little naive. I was like, wow, people still find these female characters who do questionable things unlikable to a point where they're not liking the movie, you know, or or they don't get it. I'm like, well, they're not supposed to be likable, quote unquote, whatever that means. You know, they're, they're supposed to be relatable and, and make bad decisions, um, but it didn't matter. And so we still had to sort of massage and try to find even more empathy. But but I, I try not to get let that get in the way, because as soon as you start thinking about what are people going to think about, is is this a woman who's doing too many bad things or a queer person? Like, it just starts to get in the way of the creativity. So I don't know. But material that people think of as being outside the norm as often as not queer characters or gay characters, there's been the tragic version of that. Mm -hmm. And that person has to sort of let us feel a lesson has, has been learned. But I'm a cheerleader, and you can even go back to Go Fish, all those movies are trying to say, no, we don't have to do that this kind of thing anymore. Let us exist in the world. Yes, definitely. Just let them let them be on screen <laughs> without having to, you know, educate straight audiences or, or the, the mass audience, whatever that means, on the gay experience or, or whatever it is or the female experience. Like, just, just allow them to sort of go about their lives on screen. Um, without having to teach a lesson. I also really find myself, you talking about John Hughes, and the music choices are so hilarious and specific. If I say any of them, I'll give part of the joke away, but there's a lot of old school sort of like needle drop stuff in the movie. And I want to ask you about those choices because it's a way of sort of like, for me, hailing the movies that have come before, mm. also sort of saying there's a certain kind of melodrama in music that generationally appeals to people. Totally. I think that our music choices in the end definitely reflected the time periods of the movies that we were referencing and, and trying to honor. But also music so helps with camp and tone. It can, especially dramatic music, like you can totally set the scene and, and communicate to the audience, this is what you're supposed to be feeling, but also, you know, be playing in contrast and, you know, reminding the audience this is a purposefully melodramatic moment that is at the same time supposed to be funny. So I feel like we tried to pull from different eras and and then had some like modern music as well. Some of it was written into the script, you know, like we want this song like complicated or 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 pain, you know, King Princess. Um, and then some of it we discovered after when we were trying to sort of figure out what we could get the rights to in the post process, as it always is. 
it's interesting because all these things that were antecedents that you touched on and you talked about John Hughes and one of the things about John Hughes that was so different the times that it treated the kids as if they were if their concerns mattered yeah and then they weren't condescended to yeah and for all the sort of antic quality and the high adrenaline that takes place in the movie you're still treating these emotional concerns for each of the characters seriously I'm not saying it's a serious movie, but you're yeah. taking the characters and their needs and their questions seriously. Yeah. I mean, I think that that came from our producer and, uh, you know, the wonderful women at Orion who just really wanted to understand what Josie and PJ are going through and how they're feeling. And then I think that was definitely amplified by um, Rachel and Io's performances. They're both such wonderful actors and truly just always want to make sure they're being as truthful as possible. Um, and same thing goes for the other actors like Havana and Kaya and Ruby, Miles, Nick. They Even though they're playing ridiculous characters and they're saying ridiculous things, what we were looking for and what we found to be the most effective were performances that honored the truth of their characters. Because one, it makes it funnier, I think, if they, you truly buy that they're believing what they're saying. But also because it grounds the movie to a certain extent and grounds the audience in this ridiculous narrative. You know, if you can get on board with what they're feeling and thinking in each scene genuinely, then you can buy that we're watching all this ridiculous stuff happen, too. What's well, the fun thing that you tend to do in your movies, which is there's a hysteria in the male characters. And the more masculine they are, the more like the more hysterical they, they tend to be, the less emotionally stable they tend to be, which... I'm sorry, I find myself laughing at every single time. And I'm <laughs> I'm not going to give anything away by talking about this movie, but I want to talk to you about getting an actor to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I was so lucky with the male actors I've, I've been, you know, uh, I've had the privilege of working with. I think particularly with Nicholas um, Galancine on Bottoms, like, and Miles, but particularly with Nick, because he's playing such a ridiculous character, it requires a certain humility. He's almost like you flip the mean girl archetype and turn that into him. Totally. And I think he completely understood he was like playing the villain and whatever he says goes in this town. And it was truly as simple as being like, if he doesn't get his way in each scene, like he becomes a child. And um I'm very grateful he was along for the ride. He improvised so much and, and you know, he embodied like very childlike kind of characteristics and, and physical qualities um, in the character that I think made it extra hysterical. I mean, you just have to be on the same page. You know, Nick did a wonderful job. But it's also, too, I mean, the narcissism that your male characters tend to have. It's almost like one of the worst things that have been ascribed to women. And let's give it to these guys um, just to show how absurd that kind of archetypal behavior is. But also that in some cases it can be rooted in the emotional needs of the characters, too. Yeah, I think so often as women or as female characters, you know, for in these stories, even if the the men aren't the main characters, you still they're the obstacles or they're the plot because you have to sort of navigate your life around them and what they want and what they need. And I think in both my first movie and this, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, like it's it's sort of like a man appears and wants a certain thing and everything blows up as a result of that. Or in this, you know, they're they're having to navigate this whole town that worships these these guys and, and what they say goes. Well, uh, we're out of time. Emma, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful.
director Emma Seligman, whose latest film is the unforgettable teen satire, Bottoms. Director Sofia Coppola's new film is Priscilla, and next she has The Treat, a book that enticed her to enter Graceland. If you can this holiday season, consider making an end-of-year donation to KCRW and keep the treat of the delights of KCRW programming going round all year long. Past installments of The Treat are aglow and waiting for you at kcrw.com slash the treat. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. And with The Treat, Oscar-winning filmmaker Sofia Coppola on the power of a book that surprised her by inspiring a film. Hi, I'm Sophia Coppola, and this is The Treat. I'm going to say the book Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley was an unexpected treat for me. I really loved the book because I wasn't expecting it to be so moving and relatable. I was just expecting sort of a fun, juicy read about her story, and it was written in the 80s, looking back at her her marriage and growing up, and I had no idea that she had been in high school when she lived at Graceland. And imagine, yeah, I just imagine going to Catholic school during the day and living at Graceland with Elvis in the 60s at night, and just everything um, that she went through that we know, we knew so little about her. So it was really, um, really a discovery, and she talks about it in such vivid detail about um, everything she went through, and to finally kind of find her own way and her strength at the end to um, go out on her own, which must have been so hard, especially in that era of the early '70s, being married to a powerful man and without any income of her own, and and it was very unusual then um, to do that. So I, I was really impressed and touched by her story. Maybe I didn't treat you quite as good as I should have. There's so many details that really struck me that she, you know, saw as symbolizing what he was going through or, or just that said so much that she must have intuitively known which moments to include. And there's these details that are... There was one scene where, um, I think it was an early script, but we had to trim it, but um, where Lisa Marie is a, you know, like a toddler and she's playing with spinach at the dinner table and um, making a mess and squeezing it through her fingers and, and Elvis, you know, asked the nanny to, to bring her to the kitchen. It was, it could, you know that he was, you know, she always describes him as a loving father who adored her, but the idea, like the reality of the mess of kids didn't fit into his, you know, world, which was so curated, or just said so much about going there and getting in the muck in a way. I don't know, it said, it said to me a lot about how kind of the reality affected him at that stage. Girl, I'm so sorry I was blind. Writer-director Sofia Coppola on Priscilla Presley's 1985 autobiography, Elvis and Me. Previous installments of The Treat, such as actor-filmmaker Brooklyn Sedano on The Restorative Power of Gardening, are at kcrw.com slash the treat. The Treat, tilling the soil of creativity, which blossoms into moments of inspiration that feeds the souls of creators of all types, from storytellers to artisans. 
The show is produced by Rebecca Mooney, who also edits, mixed by Kitty Gilchrist, and help comes from our team, Anna Bus, Laura Kandarajan, and PJ Shahamet. To better days, I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. I should have said and done. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.